you have to fight for your, <laughs> you have to fight for your right. These <laughs> boys said that, right? Yes. Yeah. Yes. You've got to fight for your right every single day. I think the people who rest on their laurels die, especially in consumer, because it is so competitive. And if you found something that works, there's going to be 10 people after that the next year and 20 the year after yeah. that and so on and so yeah. forth. So yeah, I mean, I think there's like over 200 brands of kombucha now. Welcome to The Irresistible Factor, a podcast where I talk to founders and investors and retailers about what it takes to launch successful brands, from developing a compelling proposition and brand identity, to raising capital, to getting distribution, and more. My name is Christy Bridges, and I'm a marketing expert with tons of experience and a true love for all things health and wellness. Welcome to today's episode of The Irresistible Factor. I am really, really pumped today because I have a guest of one of my very favorite brands. So I would like to welcome Dinah Trout, who is the co-founder and chief mission officer of Health Aid Kombucha. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. So happy to be here. Yeah, I'm so happy to have you. I'm really interested to hear your story because you guys, I mean, I talked to a lot of founders and the health and wellness places of space has obviously exploded in the past couple of years, but you were a pioneer. I feel like mm-hmm. Health Aid was founded very early on in the health and wellness movement and kombucha. When you founded Health Aid, there were a handful of people who knew what it was. So can you just talk about your inspiration for the brand and what made you decide to sort of jump into this when when it was a lot harder to explain and for people to understand? Yeah. Well, first, thank you for being a fan and for all those compliments. Yeah. So the inspiration for me, so my background is in nutrition. Prior to health aid, I was a nutritionist. I went to graduate school for nutrition and I had a real philosophy about holistic nutrition that nature and food could provide our medicine if we if we learned a little bit more about it and learned a little bit more about ourselves and what our needs were. And so fermented foods were a part of my daily life already for a good decade before I started Health Aid. My husband who was also the co-founder of Health Aid. By the way, it was three of us that co-founded it, him, me, and my best friend, Vanessa. But when I met my husband back in 2005, he had real gut issues. And as a result, I was a white-eyed and bushy-tailed nutritionist trying to heal my boyfriend at the time. And it was fermented foods that changed the game entirely. I mean, he was supposed to be on medicine for life And we were able to avoid that simply with a daily fermented food. And in particular, the kombucha, actually it was the kombucha and the sauerkraut that made noticeable differences. I mean, within half an hour, 45 minutes of having a fermented food, he could actually eat a meal and not have any kind of like crazy acid reflux, which is what would happen to him before. So I sort of learned about the power of fermented foods back then. And I think that really was the inspiration. The inspiration was this needs to be a mass product. Like I also in nutrition school learned that 50% of people have gut issues. That's a lot. (laughs) That's a lot. And we're spending trillions on medicines for gut issues and they're not really solving the root problem. They're things you have to like pop every time you eat. And I'm sure they're not really good for us long-term. And to me, I was like, well, here's this really tasty thing you can have every day, kind of like you have a soda, except it actually takes those problems away. Like it felt to me like this should not be a hippy dippy niche product. This should be a mass treat that that is like a good for you soda. 
And so the inspiration for us was how do we make this product that right now is pretty niche and pretty hippy dippy, like in terms of how the products that were already on the shelf, how they were being marketed, it was to a very select market. How do we expand that, make it way more approachable, way more mass, and also offer the functional benefit? And you know, our goal was to be the best kombucha on the market. So the most, the highest quality, the best tasting, and the most sort of functional. That was the inspiration. And so two things I would say formed the brand, the name, Health Aid, right? It says it in the name. It's healthy for you and it's a drink. That was the, the goal. But also aid to me, like Gatorade, lemonade. These are yeah. things tasty and you want to pick them up. So that there was a lot of intention behind that name. And then I would say the second is that kind of apothecary look. Yeah. We're trying to obviously message that it's, well, I guess it's ancient, I think is one thing that we're trying to message is that it's it's an old sort of lived through the time solution to, to an issue, but it's, it's sort of messaging, I think health. That's what we were trying to do anyway with the brand. Yep. You know, it's so interesting when you say things like that, because I think it's interesting to hear even as a marketer, but especially for founders who are listening, you made very intentional decisions. I don't walk around thinking, yes, I understand where health aid came from. I do. Right. But I don't think about it. And I, when you said apothecary bottle, I was like, oh my God, of course, yeah. Of course, I've been drinking it for 10 years and I didn't even think of that. And I think that's really interesting because those deliberate branding decisions at the beginning to me are some of the most important decisions because you're giving people subconscious cues, even though they don't know they're getting them. And it really makes a huge difference. I think your name is one of the best names I've heard because it really gives you a sense of what you're going to get out of it. And you're right. It has the cues of lemonade and Gatorade. Again, something that didn't occur to me when I look at it, but when you say it, it all makes complete sense. And I'm like, yes, I know all those things subconsciously. So that's really cool and smart. You had a big mountain to climb. It's different now. People understand kombucha, a lot more of them. But when you did this, you were taking on, like when you say you wanted it to be mass at the time, that must've felt like a giant mountain. Yes. Although I will say ignorance is bliss. Like I, I, <laughs> I, yes. I did not, and I had this grandiose vision. We had this grandiose vision of every fridge in America. We would say that every fridge in America, we said that all the time. And, but of course I had no idea what that actually meant. I think in our mind, and I'm going to maybe at the risk of making us sound sort of ignorant, I think we thought we only needed to raise a million dollars in total and that we would get to every fridge in America in like three to four years. I love it. Love it. With like, I think, I think with like 10 people too. Like, I mean, that was so we were way off. But yes, it was a big hill to climb. And I think we had the excitement to climb it, but really no realization of what of what the actual hill looked like, which in the end I think was a good thing. Totally agree with you. You know, I I work with so many founders that also say the same thing. Like the naivety at the beginning is what lets you do the things that feel so impossible. And if you overthink them, you just won't go, right? Yeah. You, just, you can't let yourself go. You have to believe you can do it. Yep. And even today, like our brewery today, because we make our own kombucha to mm-hmm. still, and, and our brewery is very sophisticated now. In the first three years of our business, had I walked into this brewery and seen that this is what it was going to take to scale, I would have probably quit because it was so far from I could never imagine how I could ever build this brewery. I mean, I don't know the first thing about equipment, but that's not what you need to know. And I think that that has been a lesson for me along this process is that all you need to do is take the next step. 
You just need to be able to take the next step and then the next step from there. And it's very iterative and brick by brick. And so you don't have to worry about the the cathedral you're building. You just have to know how to put one brick on top of the other. Mm -hmm. Do you feel like you still needed to have the vision for how you wanted it to be, though? Not necessarily how it was going to happen, but just some vision so that you could stay on track? For sure. I mean, there's a few things that I think have to stay. We have this, I don't know what you call it. It's not really a mission. Maybe it's a vision, a true north, but this sort of statement of we are the best tasting and highest quality kombucha you can buy, that has been a statement and staple and major true north for us in this business along the way. And I think you do need to have those things as you're making decisions because so many times there would be opportunities for me to get something cheaper or do something faster. But when we came back to, does this move us forward mm-hmm. in the best tasting and highest quality kombucha? If the answer was ever no, it made it a very simple. Love it. So yes, you do have to have those guiding principles, but you also have to have some flexibility because if you're, especially with manufacturing food and beverage, you do ultimately have to scale if you want to be big. And there are going to be changes to your process and recipe inevitably. It doesn't mean they have to be making your product inferior, but you're going to have to make changes. So if you're too purist, I have found those those people also can cause implosion to their business uh, yeah. along the way. So it's like picking and choosing your guiding principles is key. So you need to have some, but you you want to be flexible too, if that makes sense. It does make sense. You need a way to evaluate what you're doing is what you're saying and, and make yes or no decisions, which is so important. I mean, if you don't have that, then what? Then you could be all over the place and you could do things based on nothing, right? At least you're you're doing it based on a vision for the brand and us. you sort of put a stake in the ground. These are the things we're going to be and nothing's going to change that. But then having the flexibility to go with the flow to some degree, of course, you have to do that as a founder and someone in a category that is so foreign to many people. I'm curious to know how you got people over a couple of hurdles. Like when I first started drinking kombucha, the taste is surprising. It's not what we're used to, Mm -hmm. or at least weren't what we were used to. And so you have a taste thing that you have to get people to accept. And then an understanding of why this thing is good for you. How did you guys do that so early on? Yeah, it was a challenge. First, we started in the farmer's markets. So it was very cool. We were having 100 conversations, 200 conversations a day directly with our consumer. It is so rare and hard to do that if you're selling on retail shelves, right? Even DTC, there's the disconnect of tech. I'm talking to somebody directly, handing them the product, watching them drink it, seeing how they react. And so the farmer's markets were incredible. And what I learned at that time, remember we're in LA, so it's probably a bit of a niche community as it is, but about 50% of the people already knew what kombucha was. Mm -hmm. So they were coming to us because we were the better kombucha, the more artisanal kombucha. So for those people, I had a different message, but 50% were new. And what we learned in our sort of AB testing, (laughs) like live AB testing is that the word probiotic really mattered. And the concept that it made you feel good, like almost immediately Mm -hmm. mattered as well. And so what I did was I'd be like, here, take a, take a sample of our kombucha, walk around the farmer's market and then come back and like, tell me how you feel. And almost inevitably, and we'd maybe spend a minute talking about probiotics and the importance of gut health. And maybe they had already heard about that. So it was like sort of connecting the dots, but 
in the end, I left it to the product. I said, proof's in the pudding, like take this product, walk around, let me know how you feel. And almost inevitably people would say, you know what? At first I wasn't sure, but I, my stomach feels really good. I feel a little bit brighter. I'm going to buy one. And then they'd come back the next week and buy two. And, you know, then so on a year later, they'd say, I am addicted to this now. So in the end, like fast forward 10 years, we've learned people first drink kombucha because they should, Mm -hmm. because they think they should. Mm -hmm. It is one of the few food and beverage products. It's for sure the case in supplements, but in food and beverage, it's, it's not common. People first go to it for its functional benefit, and then they acquire a taste for it. A little bit similar to wine and beer, by the way, a different kind of functional benefit we're looking for. But once you know that about your product, whatever it is, what what is the first driver versus the second driver, you can start to then speak to that. So, okay, to drive trial, we need to get people to think that they should drink it or, or, or at least give them reason to drink it. And so now, of course, that's what all of our messaging is. If we ever get an indication that someone's new to kombucha, we're messaging the benefits, the features, the health impact. We're not talking about taste and flavor because we know that's not the first thing that drives someone to it. And then later on, we can start talking about taste and flavor. So I don't know if that kind of helps, but it's it's once you know that stuff about your product, it's, it's, it is a real unlock. Yeah. It's interesting because most of the categories is the opposite, right? Most of the food and bev category is taste first, taste first above all else but you guys are in a completely different position. And I I think people are willing, once they have the thought that they should be doing something, they're willing to make some trade-offs. And then I don't think you think of it as a trade-off anymore. At some point, I think you cross from, I'm not sure, to I love the taste of this. Mm -hmm. And when I take that flavor or that thing, I feel like something good's already happening. So you have all these good associations with it anyway. So yeah, that's interesting. It's very different than than the majority of the category. And even um, even price too. Typically price and taste are at the top, one, yep, two. Yep. And then function yep. might be like three, four. It's reversed with kombucha. Yep. So price is actually at the very bottom. People are willing yep. to spend more for their own health. And I'm sure as you get more and more mainstream, that starts to blur a bit, but still, yeah. Yeah. It's interesting because you also don't have the supplements hurdle, which is, I have no idea if this is working, right? You have the immediate, I feel better right now thing, which is so great. That's kind of cool. You're like, you're sort of in between those two categories, which is interesting. What was your biggest challenge? I mean, this is a big question because you guys have been around for a while. What do you feel like the biggest challenge was? I think in, in the grand scheme of things, the biggest challenge along the way, looking back was manufacturing. Now it has provided great things for the business. So I wouldn't say that I wouldn't do it again, but mm-hmm. as far as the challenge part question goes, I think that would be the right answer because the building, the brand connecting with customers, getting the product on shelf, even building the back end of the business from like a finance and HR perspective, and even an operations perspective, aside from manufacturing, was all somehow intu- not intuitive, but like you could figure it out. It wasn't like, what the heck do we do here? Manufacturing yeah. was a little bit like, whoa, this is a whole aspect of our business that really requires expertise. You can't just rely on intuition for it and requires a lot of capital and so much time. Like, so when we're 
we're going to run out of space in 12 months. Well, I already better be six months into my next brewery plans because it'll take 18 months to build it. So, and then all that cash needs to be up front. And by the way, you're still making kombucha. So now you're paying for two places at once. I mean, it's a, it's a serious, it's a big financial burden. And so the sort of impact of that on the business was we had to be really, we had to have a more cash, I think, than most businesses and quite a bit of foresight. Like we had to be able to see two years ahead and, you know, there's so much, I want to say like efficiency burn when you're doing too many things at once. And so when you're constantly building a brewery, which is kind of how it was for the first 10 years, because we were always basically, okay, we're going to be running out of space here in 18 months. Let's move to the next one. It's like, you're, you know, you're just kind of burning, burning the candle at both ends. So I would say that that's the biggest challenge, not just the aspect of like it being an entirely, it's almost its own business. Yeah. Manufacturing. It's got its own set of employees, oftentimes its own culture. You're always needing to scale it. It also is the thing that requires your business to be like on 24 seven, you know, like things happen in the brewery. And so biggest challenge on the flip side, it's offered us complete control over the quality. You know, we say what goes in the product and what doesn't, there's no surprises. And I can tell you with co-packers, there's surprises. Yeah, You might even have a strict contract that says, okay, this is what we're buying. And then five years down the road, they're like, well, you know, we decided to add this stuff in there because it, you know, and you're like, wait, what? We have control. And then of course we have the benefit of not needing to pay a middleman. So the cost for us is lower in the end, even though we had to put more up front. Yeah. So any regrets on that front or just, it was a challenge and you're glad you went through it. It's funny. I struggle with regret because regret to me means I should have known better. Right, right, right. And I think, no, I don't have any regrets from that perspective, but things I would do differently this time, perhaps where you build your brewery should have been something I thought through more. Los Angeles is very expensive per square foot. And so much of our challenge was, okay, so let's say we had four breweries along the way, basically started in our kitchen. So let's not count that one (laughs) Four legitimate breweries. So we went kind of like from A to B to C to D. Of course, it would have made sense to go from A to D. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But we didn't have the space to do that. And because things are so expensive here, we didn't have the money. Yep. And I had fellow friends in manufacturing that were building in, in the Midwest or even in other countries, and it didn't impact our quality at all. So I think that would be something interesting had I thought that through a little bit more. But I will say in the, in the middle of it, you're growing so fast. The concept of figuring out how I build a brewery in Kansas, like there's no way we could have done that. And mm-hmm continued to grow like we were. So everything's a trade-off. I don't know. And then if if we hadn't grown as fast as we did, perhaps we wouldn't have been as successful as we are in the end because so much of it is a land grab. That's the other thing about beverage. It is a bit of a zero-sum game. Like it's competitive. Not everybody gets on the shelf. So So being first on the shelf or second or third matters. Like you don't want to be sixth, seventh, eighth. So it's hard for me to look back and say, oh, we should have done that. We should have done that. It did work. But I think for sure, looking into other locations, because there is a cost perspective. Other than that, I honestly, I think we we had to do it the way we did it. I certainly wouldn't have co-packed it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Talk about your capital raising. You guys were doing along the way, I imagine, and you yes. had big investment. And so what what was it like to raise capital? And then what what's life like post-acquisition? Yeah. So I think raising capital is probably the top challenge for any entrepreneur. 
And I would have told you that was number two challenge, but I think we had it easy compared to other businesses. The reason is that we hooked up with private equity early on. And while I saw that as a challenge, I realize now having talked to other founders that it was it was way harder to try to raise money from friends and family and and sort of patchwork money together than it was for me because I always could go to the same well. Yeah. So in retrospect, I think it was, it made it easier for us, but basically our story was about a year after farmer's markets, we were doing very well growing, but we were still tiny under a million in revenues, but doing well, had some buzz. Cameron Diaz was, you know, seen carrying health aid. So it was Kim Kardashian. It was sort of like a, what's this brand? We were, we were bigger in brand than we were in sales, Uh at least in LA. And it was right place, right time. Some private equity groups were already hearing about kombucha and wanting to get in on the early wave. And one of the private equity managing directors at First Beverage tried our product, loved it, contacted us and said, we want to do something together. So we were a little bit surprised by that. But I will just tell you in tandem, we were desperate for cash. Though we were growing, we had no more, like it was it was growing so fast, we yeah. didn't enough to put into the business. And we were just starting to expand into stores like retail stores, like grocery stores, and they take 90 days to pay you. So the amount of cash we needed was just too much. The three of us had no personal assets, not even a house to leverage. (laughs) It's probably better. We didn't have any savings. So there was no debt available to us, like, because we weren't yet profitable. So we had no options besides to raise money. There was no option. And we sort of realized this too late, a little bit, I don't know, in this case, if ignorance was bliss, but we were ignorant. (laughs) You know, I don't think we realized how quickly we needed cash. As soon as we signed up for Gelson's, which was our first real grocery, that's when it suddenly hit us. It was like, we don't even have enough money to buy bottles. Like it, it happened so fast. So we were desperate. And first beverage was there and we just got lucky. Now, the flip side of that is we had to give quite a bit of our personal company away to private equity, but I think it was the right move for us because it was really the only option. And then we were with first beverage along the way. We hooked up with Kavu, which is another private equity company halfway through. We raised in total about 60 million over the 10 years. And whenever it came time for us to need cash, we would go, of course, to our private equity groups and we would align on a value. It was a very tough time, mostly personally, because, well, two reasons. One, I wish this didn't happen, but founders tend to get wrapped up in like the identity of themselves with the identity of the business. It's one and the same. And so when someone's trying to put a number to what you're worth, it can get very personal. And so I always found those to be the most emotionally challenging times raising money because mm-hmm. of course I was saying, oh no, we're we're much more than this. And of course, anybody who's giving you money is going to say you're much less. And there ends the rub. But it was also challenging personally because as CEO, you're also running a business that's growing 400%. Mm-hmm. And you're trying to have all these meetings with your private equity group. And so it's like crazy time constraints and stress. So I would say those times, like if I were to do sort of like a up and down, like when were the best times of my life and when were the worst times, the lows tend to always go around fundraising time. It's so interesting that you say that because it's hard and it is a, 
I mean, I compare it to like, first of all, business development and second of all, dating, like you're just constantly selling yourself. And if people aren't buying and your identity is connected to it, it hurts. Yeah. Yeah. And it's hard to stay positive. Like you have to have a really strong emotional sort of fitness thing going to be able to feel like, okay, that's okay. I'm still good. They just didn't, that just wasn't my person. That wasn't the right, the right investor for me. Yes. It took me a long time to get to that place of disassociating my personal self-worth from how the business was doing. Cause it used to be that when the business did well, I was happy. And when it Uh didn't do well, I was sad and that's no way to live. And also you're not as good a CEO that way. Yeah. I don't think so. Anyway, that took some time. I now have learned that. And I'd like to say, as I move forward, perhaps I'll be more stable. I don't know if that's the case. I'll, I'll have to start my next business to know that. <laughs> no, it's. A, I, I honestly think it's one of the most important lessons and important pieces of advice for, for up and coming founders, because it is, if you let yourself go high every time and low every time, it is an emotional roller coaster that is so hard to sustain. And I think what you said is true. Like if you can, if you don't connect your happiness to the highs and lows, because you can't like sometimes the highs aren't even as great as you thought they were going to be. And the lows are almost never as bad as, as low as you thought they were going to be. So I think mm-hmm. that I honestly think that's one of the most important pieces of advice that, that anyone could take away from something like this, because it's going to yeah. be a roller coaster, right? It's not smooth. Exactly. Yeah. And I think there's two things that you can help yourself with as you're entering it. It's one managing your expectation. There are going to be highs and there are going to be lows. It's going to be like really big lows. That's normal. That's part of anybody's path to success. Yes. Swamp, dark messes of despair. Like that's going <laughs> to, so, yes. you know, having the expectation Raise that those them. are coming yeah. is one, is one thing so that when they're there, you're not like, what's wrong with me? You know, yeah. there's nothing wrong with you. It's normal. It happened to everybody. Yes. And it happens to everybody. And so what you can do in those moments is try to get through as best you can, as fast you can through those dark moments. That's that's sort of what I try to do. And then when you're on a high, try to make those last. Yeah. <laughs> do your best to get those as long, you know, and that's essentially how you play that game of life in business. But yeah. the second thing you have to do, I think, is be more than the business. You can't give 100% of your time to the business and also know who you are beyond that. Like you've got to carve out time for the other things you care about. So I think that's what founders have to do. They have to take the time to still take care of themselves, still have friends. May not be the time they're doing everything on the social calendar, but like you got to like barricade off. I am also a hiker, not just a CEO of health aid. And those types of things make you realize, okay, I am having a bad day at work, but I'm having a good, good week with my kids. So I'm not all bad. (laughs) Yep. Important. What's life like now post-acquisition? Is it Mm. different? Yes. Very different. Crossing the finish line was one of the greatest moments of my life. So look, it's not just about the financial freedom, although that's awesome. We started this with nothing. We were living paycheck to paycheck. I mean, we weren't living on the streets or anything, but it was like, Like I kept looking in my future and saying, when does a house come into play? Like there's no way, right? The financial freedom of having acquired, having sold the company and gotten a chunk of money for it and being able to basically live the life that I want has been incredible. And I want it for everybody who wants it. I look back on the 10 years and I'm like, wow, I'm so proud of that. I earned it. Feels really good. So that feels good. I think this doesn't happen for everybody, but when we were acquired, I chose to step down or step out of CEO 
because I had done it for 10 years and I was tired. It had taken so much of my time and energy. And while I loved it and it was so fulfilling and I felt like I was called to that role, I needed a break. I had two young kids. I had a husband who was also involved with the business that we had just been go, go, go. Mm -hmm. So it was time for me now to have that yang to the yin and focus a little more at home. I wanted to take on a job that wasn't so 24 mm-hmm. seven. And so I, I created this role chief mission officer, which has been essentially a custom design, if you will, <laughs> based on what I like to do and what I'm good at and what I think is valuable for health aid. I'm involved heavily with brand. I'm involved heavily with the nutrition side of things. So like all the gut health content and clinical trials we do in gut, gut health, like I'm leading all of that. And then I'm doing company responsibility and sustainability too. We we were always charitable, but we never had any, had any strategy to it. Yeah. So now we're trying to impact the community with our mission, which is we want people to understand gut health and understand nutrition and food. So that's my job now. And funny enough, I'm like, how did we do this before without a person in this role? Because there's so much to do. So it's pretty cool. And the CEO is my co-founder, Vanessa, and she's able to focus on the day-to-day. So the two of us are kind of like a one-two punch. I'm loving it. I'm so much less stressed. It's great. I highly recommend crossing the finish line. It's it's awesome. <laughs> I'm sure that that's a goal for everyone. So it's nice to hear that when you do it, it actually was as rewarding as you hoped it would be. Yeah. Yeah. That's really cool. Can you just talk a little bit? So you guys have been around for a while. And there are new brands that come in every single day, although I I think it's going to slow down a little bit because the funding has, to some degree, gotten tougher to come by. But how do you guys think about competing with all the new brands and staying relevant and innovating? Is that challenging? Of course. You have to fight for your, (laughs) you have to fight for your right. (laughs) DC Boy said that, right? Yes. Yeah. You got to fight for your right every single day. I think the people who rest on their laurels die, especially in consumer, because it is so competitive. And if you found something that works, there's going to be 10 people after that the next year and 20 the year after that and so on and so forth. So, yeah, I mean, I think there's like over 200 brands of kombucha now. Yeah. And I see these and while of course at first I'm not like, oh God, I'm at risk of losing my shelf space at Costco today. No. But what I see is, okay, they're being really innovative. This is how they're messaging. This is how they look. It looks different and new. Our consumer in particular, like the healthy consumer, they like new things. Yeah. So yeah, no, it always makes me nervous. And we are inspecting that stuff as a company regularly. We're always in the know about what else is out there and trying to analyze it. What we're not doing is just following it. And I think that's an important thing that at least I like that we do because the consumer, I think, likes or can pick up when a brand is being authentic. Mm-hmm. And so if you're just doing what everybody else is doing for no good reason, they're going to start to lose over time, subconsciously, maybe even their love for you. So I'm careful to make sure the team doesn't just, oh, this team is growing or this company's growing and look, they have this on their can. So let's slap it on our can. I'm like, no, but I still think it's important. We understand and know the competition and yeah, it's hard. And look, it happens every day that a competition from the, the lower ranks, if you will, just takes you by surprise. So, I mean, even us, we weren't the first to market. There was a company there I won't mention because I don't want anybody to be thinking about them. 
<laughs> but they were there 11 years prior to us. Yeah. And I think we must have been this little gnat in the beginning that was like, what is this company that's come out of nowhere? They're not going to take my right. space. Right. And lo and behold, that's that was their not demise because they're still doing well. But the point is competition comes in and in the end, I like it because I think the consumer wins. Yeah. And you I, keep on your toes and yeah. Also, I think there's something about you guys being a leader in the category that makes it not acceptable for you to be a follower all of a sudden, right? Like you can't do all the things because you know things that other people don't know yet, right? Yeah. They're testing and testing and you guys have been testing for a long time. So yeah. I think it's an interesting position to be in. What has come up from an innovation perspective? I know you have the giant bottles, which I think are great. And have you gone into, and you know, you have quite a few flavors and love what you guys did with some of the, the functional labeling that you did. So it wasn't just flavor based, but what else is on the horizon for you guys? Yeah. So within kombucha, we still see a lot of meat on the bone. So I think you'll continue to see packaging and flavor innovation from us there. And yeah, I mean, our goal is to be a gut health brand that makes delicious bubbly beverages that are good for your gut. So we've launched a product called pop, which is a prebiotic soda. It is, it does have a kombucha base, but we've brought down those vinegar flavors a lot. So it's kind of like a gateway kombucha Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. instead of probiotics. It has prebiotics. It's got way less sugar. So it's kind of like the way we're trying to position that one is a good for you, a good for you soda. And it really does taste like fruity soda. And we're trying to hit a more mainstream market with that. I think you'll continue to see innovation from us in that space. It's hard though, because we're still a business that doesn't have unlimited funding and everything, as I mentioned, is a trade-off. So everything we're putting towards something new is something we're not putting toward kombucha. So so it's always a challenge of how much do we want to put toward that when this still needs our love? It's kind of like having an infant and a 14 year old, you know? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So, but I, I do think the goal is for us to innovate and have a platform of brands ultimately. We just want to make sure we're doing that smartly and not forgetting about right now our most, our still most important part of the business, which is our kombucha. Yeah, that's interesting. Where do you see the brand in five years and where do you see you in five years? So brand, I think I see, first of all, kombucha in way more fridges. Just on a side note, we talked about innovation and product, but I think there's also innovation and messaging or at least in messaging. And that's That's another thing that we always keep on our toes. You've got to refresh your messaging every year or even more often. The consumer moves. You've got to move with them. You've got to be, you've got to have a a real pulse on that. And even just doing something fresh is important. So I think there's also that aspect and that discipline to, Mm -hmm. to not rest on your laurels with the same message you've had forever. Okay. So you asked about five years. So first of all, I see kombucha and way more fridges. I'm hoping that we'll have launched past the only the health and wellness consumer mm-hmm. and toward more of the healthy-ish consumer at least, or more. Yeah. Yep. I also hope that we'll have passed the borders of the U S and entered an international market with some meaning. I mean, we are a little bit in Canada and Mexico, but I mean, way more. I want to be an international company, I think in five years. So that's where, where kombucha will be. I'd like to see health aid as number one at that point. So, you know, that's just a personal goal. And then as a brand, I, I hope that we will have at least one or two additional products with meaning on the shelf that offer something new for gut health. Those take a long time to launch, a lot of money. And it's not something I think we need to be doing every year, but I'd like to see one at least in five years that's like a big part of our business, like 10% of our business or something. Yeah. Me personally, 
I hope to continue to unlock our mission for health aid. I'd love to see people looking at health aid and not just seeing, oh, this is good for me, but actually having made an impact on their understanding of gut health. Mm-hmm. And- it's really tough still. It's still really confusing. Even I, I'm in this every day and sometimes I'm still confused between prebiotics and probiotics. I still think there's so much educating to be done. Yeah. I mean, even physicians and our doctors don't know. Mm -hmm. So it's, there's a lot to do there. And I'm challenged because as you know, when you have a brand, you can only say one thing from, and you can scream it for a million years from the mountaintop and consumers might still not hear it. So Uh it's not so simple to just add another line to your narrative. So I do think it is a, also an iterative thing, like a business where you have to kind of close the gap, the first step, then the second step. And so working on that. And I hope in five years, we'll have made great, made great strides. Awesome. Before I let you go, which first of all, thank you. This is amazing. I could talk to you for hours and hours and hours. I have a million personal questions. I'll ask you some other Mm -hmm. time, but also advice for founders, people who are coming up, like what's the, the thing you wish you knew or something you want people to know as they move forward in their brand journeys? Gosh, Somebody who's not yet started out and wants to start out, my advice would be get in the game. You're sitting on the bench and the game's out there and you're not going to. So that would be my advice to them. But to everybody else who's already in it, I would say follow your gut. I I know that's sort of cheesy because it's also our tagline, but (laughs) it, it, it truly is a mantra for me. Business does not have a guidebook. There are a million ways to do it right. Everybody's going to tell you that they have the answer for you and that they have, you know, the right way. But the truth is there is no right way. There's a million right ways and we won't know the right way until you're on the other side of it. And then at that point, you're either brilliant or you're hearing I told you so. And so I really think the best thing for a founder is to lean into the realization that they hold the paintbrush and it's their canvas and you can draw it and paint it however you wish. For sure, getting insights from people is a good idea, but ultimately you make the call. The sooner you can get into that space of realizing that you make the call and you might just be right. So leaning into what your intuition is telling you, I think is the best advice. That's really good advice and and very unusual too. I haven't heard that that much. I've heard follow the data and get a good group of advisors and all those things are important too, of course. But I think that you have to live with your decisions and you started business for a reason and you knew something, right? I think that's really good advice as well. So I really appreciate that. Anything else you want to share before we wrap up? No, just thank you so much for your time. It's been a great time. I love this interview. So thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Thank you for listening to The Irresistible Factor. I'm Christy Bridges, and I can't wait to see you next Wednesday.